Music team, thanks for feeding us already. We've captured this reality, church, that we are celebrating something we could not earn on our own. That's why we're celebrating today. This is not something that we can conjure up or something that we can earn on our behalf. It's all been done by Christ and we rejoice in Him. So let me open with this declaration statement. We have a great high priest. This is the author. This is the point the author of Hebrews has been making all along in our study. So, even as we just sang, let us boast in Him. Let us put our confidence in Him. Let us hold fast to Him. Let us believe in Him. Believe unto action unto Christ. So this is what the author of Hebrews has been arguing for. The supremacy of Christ Jesus And he's also been issuing a warning against walking away from him. True? These are the two repetitive themes that we've heard as we've walked through the book. So with very good pastoral reasoning, he has been helping us, urging us, his readers, Jesus is all you have. He's supreme. Do not fall away. Don't Walk away from Him. Even even towards religious things, remember who these recipients were. They were Jews that were tempted to go back to the old sacrificial system. They're not not just throwing their hands and saying, I'm going to do life whatever I want. They're going to retreat to religious system. And and the author of Hebrews is saying, "You, you have nothing in that religious system. Even in good religious things, you have nothing if you, have no, if you don't have Christ Jesus. And so his warning is, don't walk away from him. Don't turn to anything else. And so there's been this strong encouragement. Jesus is supreme. He is the spoken word of God. He is the creator of the world. This is all from Hebrews 1. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact replica of His nature. Do you want to know what it would be like if God entered into our time and space and came in and we could get to know Him and what He's like? That was Jesus. He's the exact representation of His nature in heaven here on earth. He is greater. He is better. Hebrews chapter 2, He's better than the angels. He's better than the prophets, than any previous messenger. He is the message. He's better than Moses. And so then he's also issuing a strong warning. And if you don't give yourself in mind, body, spirit, and volition to Christ as the supreme one, the supreme salvation king of the universe, there is no rest for you. In other words, stepping away from a holdfast, confident clinging to Jesus as the very Word of God. Disobeying Jesus, not just in what He says, but who He is and what He came to do. 
in disobeying him is on the same level as those who disbelieved and walked away from God's word in the Sinai wilderness. They will not enter my rest. And so the author is saying, he is the supreme one. Take hold of him. Let your confidence be in him. And so I'm summarizing and repeating this strong encouragement and this strong warning because that's what the author has been doing. He's been repeating these themes, but I'm also summarizing and repeating to kind of bring us back up to speed because if we don't get this strong encouragement and also this strong warning, then we won't truly understand the strong comfort that the author gives us today. As Martin Luther was heading into this section, he said this, After terrifying us, the author now comforts us. And so Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 are meant to be a great comfort to us. Jesus is supreme. Follow him or there is no rest. Oh my gosh, this is serious. Yeah, don't get overwhelmed. I'm going to comfort you. And his words are comfort are found in this reality. We have a great high priest who is the son of God. His name is Jesus. It's our comfort. So what is this comfort that Martin Luther is speaking of is exactly this. And we've been hearing it all through our study in the book of Hebrews. But now as we come to the end of chapter 4, the author takes all of his teaching and he compresses it into a doxology of sorts. He compresses all that we've been learning in the first four chapters into this rich Christian confession. And this, in this confession, we find our comfort. We have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. It's our comfort. So let's read this passage together that embodies this comfort. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, find grace to help us in our time of need. So in this compressed Christian confession, the author is going to lay out for us seven reasons why Jesus is great. And then he's going to give us two right responses, two appropriate responses. Here is seven things that make Jesus the great high priest. And then he's going to say, and here's two appropriate responses to that reality. And then at the end, he's going to give us three results from combining Jesus you're great I'm responding appropriately and then he's going to say and then you get guaranteed results out of that 
reality. So we're going to walk through these seven reasons and then take a look at what our response is to this great high priest and see some results. Okay, ready? Let's jump in. Sound good? So right at the beginning, the author says, since we have a great high priest What we need to understand in this very first outset, this first reason for the greatness of Jesus is because he is a high priest. Jesus is great because he is a high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the priest of all priests, like I mentioned in the beginning. There was only one and he was the boss of all the other ones. He had special clothing and adornments. He was the one who wore this breastplate with 12 stones that would actually determine God's will for the people. It was only him that was able to wear that. He had special clothing. He had a special accoutrements. And he also had a special role. Special responsibilities. And as I referenced when we began, the high point or the greatest of his responsibilities was on the Day of Atonement. Tenth day of the seventh month of every year, he would make a sacrifice, not only for his own sins, but for the sins of the entire nation. If you remember, when the Israelites pass over the Jordan River, God is going to establish his presence with them when they come, sorry, when they come out of Egypt, God is going to establish his presence with them and he has them build a temple. Remember, it's like a portable temple that they're able to take with them. And in the center of this temple is the Holy of Holies. And God says, I'm going to dwell there and I'm going to meet with you there. But if you enter there with sin, you will be killed. Not because I'm mean, but because sin can't dwell in my presence. It can't exist. You can no longer live in the presence of God and His holiness with sin on you than you could stand on the sun and not be consumed. It's a law of the universe. You see what I'm saying? If we have sin, it gets consumed. Holiness burns it up. And God says, so that you're not burnt up, your sins need to be atoned for. They have to be paid for so that you can come into my presence. That was the whole reason for the sacrificial system. It was a symbol that it took blood and life in order to give us life. Sin had to be put on somebody else's life so that we could enter with a life that was free from sin. It's the reason for the Holy of Holies. And so the priest would enter into this place covered with sin, and he would offer a sacrifice, a blood reminder that sin breaks our relationship with you, and sin puts us in danger of being killed by your holiness. Are you with me? And so the job of the high priest was one day a year, he would enter into this room, and he would make atonement for the sins of the entire nation. And if he entered into this room irreverently or carelessly or he hadn't purified himself the right way or he had hidden sin, that he would immediately be killed by God's holiness. And so he entered the throne room alone and with fear and trepidation. If you think about even in some of the movies you've seen and how people approached thrones, you never... 
There's all these rules. You don't look the king in the eye. You never get your head above his head or you lose it, right? You, you, you bow, you walk in. Sometimes you would walk in backwards. I mean, you didn't, you didn't just waltz in before a throne and say, Hey, I got some things I'd like to talk to you about. It didn't happen. You walked in with fear and trepidation because I could get whacked here. Really. If you did one thing wrong before the king, there was a guy standing next to him with a sword and he killed you. And so here, this high priest enters into God's holiness with fear and trepidation. So much so that they actually sewed bells on the end of his garments so that the people outside knew that he was still moving and alive. And he also had a rope tied around his ankle that went out. So if the bells like all of a sudden jingled kind of loud and then everything stopped, they knew to grab a hold of the rope and pull him out because nobody's going in there after him. And so he entered with fear and trepidation. But when he succeeded in making sacrifice, the whole nation heaved a sigh of relief because he succeeded for everybody in making atonement for sins. And so this high priest was a mediator. He was a go-between. He represented the people before God and God before the people. And hear this. His position was so prominent that when he died, there were things in, built in Israel called cities of refuge. And they were actually among the Levitical people. The Levitical people were priests of the time. So the high priest was priest over all the other priests. That was the tribe of Levi. And inside the tribe of Levi, in the property that they were given as a tribe, there was these cities of refuge that if you accidentally killed somebody and you um, didn't want to die because their family would avenge them, you could go to these cities of refuge and you would be safe. And when the high priest died, when his life was over, all the residents, all the captives in those cities of refuge went free. See what's happening? When the high priest dies, the captives are set free. And so here at the beginning of this section in Hebrews, the author introduces Jesus as the great high priest. He's great because he is the high priest. This leads to our next reason that makes Jesus great. Jesus is a great high priest because he has passed through the heavens. This is a resurrection verse. What this means is that Jesus didn't just enter into a man-made throne room. He didn't just enter a replica of heaven. Where God s- symbolically sits between these two angels' wings as a pillar of smoke. No, he entered into the heavens. He actually entered into the real throne room where God actually sits. Jesus went into the heart of the very real throne room where the, where the eternal Yahweh sits on his throne in full manifestation of all of his glory and power and where the space where spectacular beings endlessly cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And Jesus passed through into that place. 
He wasn't a high priest in a man-made one. He's a great high priest because he passed through the very kingdom of God. The very true sanctuary. And in this place, he doesn't present an animal. He presents himself as the atonement, as the sacrifice for the atonement of our sins. For all people, one time, for all time. He is a great high priest because he has passed through the heavens. He's a great high priest because he is the Son of God. One of the things I didn't tell you about the high priest when we were rolling through it is one other item is that the high priest role was hereditary. In other words, you didn't get voted in. You didn't get chosen. They didn't send out, you know, what do they call that? A pastoral search committee. They didn't send out a Levitical priest, high priest committee. You were a son of the previous high priest. And that's how you became high priest. And if you weren't one and you weren't impeccably uh, presented both physically and spiritually, you couldn't become a high priest. And so the high priest had to be the son of the previous high priest. Look at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of who? God. He's making a declarative statement. Jesus is no son of another high priest man. Jesus is the son of God. Do you see it? Do you see how important that is? He's a great high priest because he is the inheritance of God himself, not a man-made system. And Jesus was the Son of God who passes through the heavens. He enters the throne room and makes sacrifice, makes atonement for our sins. Now we're going to talk about this in a little bit more. But these first three reasons that Jesus is a great high priest have to do with his throne. They have to do with his authority. And this idea of walking into a throne room, this establishes his greatness and his supremacy. And now these next three really contribute to, but he's also this king who sits on a throne, but he's gracious. And so our fourth reason that Jesus is a great high priest is because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. I remember numerous times in my life when someone I highly respected shared an area of weakness in their own lives and I found it very comforting. Oh, they get it. They get me. They understand. They've been there. Even, you know, I'm maybe infamous for confessing sins of a wayward pastor and I don't do that you know, for any other reason to say, I'm flawed just like you. We have one pastor, his name is Jesus, and what we're doing here is about him, and we're all following him, and I get in line with him right 
underneath him right alongside of you. But as I share even some of my own weaknesses, some of you have said to me, when you share your own weaknesses, that's really helpful for me. Like that, that makes me feel real or it's tangible. And I realize we're in this together and it's all about Christ. There's something that God wove into us and resonates and finds hope when somebody sympathizes with us. True? And what the author of Hebrews says is Jesus is a great high priest because he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now the author, we've, we've studied this, but he has already told us in chapter 2 verse 18 that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now he's repeating that, right? This is a condensed in there. He had to become like his brothers so that he couldn't just be a king on a throne, but that he would be a merciful king on a throne. See it? And the reason he can sympathize with us brings up our fifth point that he's reason that he's great is because he has been tempted in every way as we have guys sometime i just need to do a whole series on this there's so much packed in here this reality of jesus being tempted in every way as we are as a leadership team we're coming alongside of a friend who has had some difficulties and even together we felt the weight of the difficulties and there's four guys trying to help with the difficulties of one other person and we feel the weight and it has been coming more and more clear to me here's four guys trying to bear up under the weight of of one person and we can't barely do it can you imagine bearing up under the weight of the sin of the entire world hello we have no clue what that looks like look Some of you that are married, you don't even like the weight of your spouse's sin, let alone the weight of your spouse's plus every other spouse in the room's sin. We can't possibly bear up underneath it. We have no clue the temptations that Christ faced. None. He was the direct and tip of the spear for every demonic pressure that ever encountered man because nobody nobody's failure would mean more than the failure of christ for the evil world true all of the pressure of hell itself the from the moment he was born by the way if you flash forward into the book of revelation and you have the seven-headed beast and he's waiting for this 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 woman to give birth That's a picture of what's going on in the birth of Christ. You have this evil demonic being. It's a it's a symbolism. And here's this baby getting ready to be born forth. And this seven headed beast is ready to consume this child that comes out. It's talking about the birth of Christ from the minute he comes out all pink and ruddy and covered in that white stuff. And he takes his first breath. All of heaven, all of hell presses in in order to get him not to do his job church we have no clue what it means to be tempted not for nothing but when we get tempted how how often do we resist very little and then we get you know i'm going to do it my way true christ saw every temptation to its ultimate end we we get off the highway 
we have no clue how long that road goes. True? Experientially? Because here's the highway. Oh. Mm. Christ stayed, saw every temptation completely through until he bore up over it and resisted it every time. One author says it this way. Jesus' whole life was one of temptation. And the very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known. And the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptations. No one on earth before or since has ever been through such spiritual desolation and human anguish. It's true. He is a great high priest because he has been tempted in every way and so much more than we have. But he is also a great high priest because he faced those temptations and he is without sin. He was tempted as we are, the author says, and yet without sin. Here in verse, in chapter eight, verses eight, in chapter five, verses eight and nine, just, just the next chapter over, the author says this, although he was a son, talking about Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. I was always like, what does that mean? He goes on, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. By the way, remember we've talked about this, this word obey and the word believe in the original language are, are the same. You can't say you believe and not obey. It doesn't happen. So you could actually translate this verse And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. You could also say for all those who believe in him. But the author, the the, uh, translators, put it could be either way. They put obey because it needs to be more forceful because that's what they're trying to say. You got to believe unto obedience. What does this mean that he learned obedience by what he suffered? It means that he learned, the God of the universe, hear this, learned or knows firsthand experientially what it costs for humans to obey. That's what that means. The author of the universe, the God of the universe, learned experientially as a man how hard it is for us to obey. He knows how hard it is, church. We should be cheering. Okay? This gives us comfort. He knows how hard it is experientially for us to obey. More so. You hear me? He faced every temptation like us. Followed it to its complete end. He stayed on the highway... And then he overcame it and won victory. Therefore, he knows. Actually, in verse 7 of chapter 5, it says, With loud cries and tears, 
okay, so temptation is coming in his way. And he's like, I'm not going to do this. I can't, please. Loud cries and tears. To do what? To resist temptation. He knows. When was the last time you were faced with a difficulty? Loving your, your spouse or not cheating on your taxes or obeying your parents or doing the right thing or not giving into sexual sin? When was the last time you fell down and said, God, please help me to resist? Jesus knows. He's done it on our behalf, church. You know why? Because we don't. We couldn't. I'm, I'm hoping I'm doing this right because this should infuse us with vitality and hope. That's, that's my desire in this teaching that, that we should be going, oh, you're a great high priest because you have been tempted in every way without sin. And so Hebrews 12, 3 will say, consider him, think about him. Remember, remember what this word consider means, not just, you know, pontificate. But that we would focus so hard that the, the focus would change us. Remember? So Hebrews 12 says, Consider, think about him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. You see what I'm saying? So something about Christ resisting temptation on our behalf and when we think about him, that helps us not grow weary and faint-hearted. Because then he goes on to say, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But he did. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this is, remember, after the Passover, which we celebrated last week, the disciples sing a hymn, and then they go out to a garden. Jesus says, stay there and pray for me. I'm going over here to pray. And when Jesus goes over there to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, two wills collide. Although I don't completely get this, Jesus says, Father, you have a will and I have a will. I think he's speaking humanly. I don't want to do this. And he is resisting the temptation not to go to the cross. And he is so bent on resisting this. And we know this is true medically. Somebody can be under such duress and the duress wasn't, I, I don't know that the duress was all the weight of the sin of the world, which is true, but what the duress was, was he had a choice for that weight to rest on him. And the duress of having to make that choice, of having that weight put on him, literally blood came out of his pores. And we know under significant stress that happens. And the author says, none of you have ever resisted temptation that way. None of you. And that's true for us. Yeah? Christ has. And so Jesus fights hard to resist that temptation through drops of blood. And yet at the end, he does not sin. And rather he says, not my will, but yours be done. Amen? It's true. 
And so the author says, and being made perfect, that's what he's talking about. He, he followed through. He allowed God's will to be done. He was made perfect and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who believe him unto action. So he is a great high priest because he's without sin, which is why he could enter the throne room as God's son on our behalf. And so lastly, he is a great high priest because his throne is one of grace. Now all of these elements come together in this one word picture, throne of grace. Now, hoping that we have a better understanding of what that means. See? Because again, people thinking about walking into a throne room and they're thinking about entering with danger and trepidation. But because of all these good and amazing things that God is, first in His person and then also because He can relate with our weaknesses and that He's born up under our temptations and yet He's done that without sin, we can enter into that throne room because of His grace. Are you with me? So these two things come together. They're unlikely partners. Throne and grace? Nobody has a throne of grace. Everybody has thrones of power. But because of who Christ is, His is a throne of grace. And so these first three reasons for His greatness have to do with the throne. He's a high priest. He's passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God. And the second three reasons for His greatness have to do with His grace. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He's tempted as we are. And yet, He is without sin for us throne of grace and therefore this throne of eternal power and complete holiness is a throne approachable we have a great high priest Jesus the son of God and so the author says there's two appropriate responses. Let us hold fast to our confession. That's the first one. And then let us draw near with confidence. If I'm doing my job, you're going, that makes sense. I get it. We, we hold fast to our confession. Why? Because the only hope we have of not being killed by God's holiness is a confession of Jesus. It's not because of our, hey, I'm, I'm, my good outweighs my bad. It's not because I, I had an animal sacrifice. It's not for my good works. It's not because we overcame every temptation. Right? If we're to enter into God's presence both now and forever, it is going to be because of the work that Jesus has done as our high priest. True? And so our only hope before God's presence is confessing Jesus. You with me? And so, the author says, hold fast to that confession. You, this is the whole purpose of the book. You have nothing else. You have no works. You have no ability to uh, uh, um, prevail under temptation. You, you have no special robe. 
You have no special animal. You have nothing. And so let us hold fast to this confession. What confession? Christ is all I have. And then because this is our confession, hear this, we can draw near to this throne, not with bells and ropes, with confidence. This is such a good word. I'm watching a series of videos. It's called The Preaching Class. Um, it's a thir- series of 30 videos to help grow pa- pastors to teach. And the first three videos are all about what an absolute privilege it is to study and then to present God's Word. And it's true. In church, as I study this, you know that it's taking hold of me. And then I long to bring it to you. It's true. And this reality that I like, I've never seen this before at this level. As we hold fast to this confession, we enter his throne with confidence. It's not about me. You know. Because we confess Christ alone, we enter under Christ's value and worth alone. Not ours. See, if we entered into ours, we better go in with fear and trepidation, right? A rope around our ankle and bells on our garment. You know, I told the boys, maybe I should put bells on around my ends of my jeans. It's not about me. It's not about my worth. It's not about my value. So I enter confidently. And this is what the author is talking about. Holding fast to this confidence and entering, holding fast to this confession, and then entering confidently, you have no better comfort for your soul than this. Yeah? Yep. And then since, this is how he starts, since we have a great high priest, and since we're holding fast to our confession of him, and since... We are drawing near with confidence. There's three guaranteed results. So we don't have to manufacture these results. They're there as the result of something. You with me? And here's the results. They're right at the end of verse 16. Let us draw. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy. Find grace. And get help with our temptations. When we say, Christ, you're all I have, it's my confession, and I enter the throne room, relationship with God, friendship with God, eternity with God, starting now, moving till then, since I confess you, Christ, and since I'm holding fast to you, and since I'm entering with confidence, here's the guaranteed results, you will receive mercy. What's mercy mean? It means you don't get what you deserve. So when you come into the throne room, you will receive mercy. You will not get what you deserve. You'll get mercy. You'll receive it. It's a given. You're clinging to Christ. 
You're walking in with confidence because it's his merit, not my own. Mercy belongs to you. And the author says, you will find, you'll find it. You'll discover in this throne room, grace. I'm given things. Mercy is a withholding of something you deserve. Grace is your given stuff you don't deserve. And so now we get friendship, life with him forever. We get how to do life right now. We get how to do family, how to do relationships, how to treat your neighbor. You get all of that, you find it in his throne room. And you don't just find Hear this, you don't just find grace for you, you find it for other people. So your life gets freed up to be a recipient and a giver of grace. Because when you enter under, oh man, I don't deserve any of this, and I have sinned far greater against God than anybody has ever sinned against me, and I enter and I don't get what I deserve, uh, maybe I shouldn't be giving other people what I think they deserve. We find mercy for ourselves and grace for us and for other people. He is our high priest. He has passed through the heavens. He is God's son. He can sympathize with us. He's tempted like us, but he didn't sin for our behalf and because that is who he is, when we come to him, we find grace. And we also get help in time of need. What's this time of need? It, he's, what he's talking about specifically is you get help in overcoming your temptations. Look, if you're clinging to Christ and you're confessing him, you're my only hope and you enter with confidence Hey, if you're in the throne room, your temptations... Now, this is not Rob's idea. This is not my opinion. This is the opinion of God. When you're in that place, temptations lose their power over you. You get help with your temptations. Church, let me tell you, very practically, if you're struggling with a particular sin issue, get to God's mercy seat. Get to holding Him up high. Get to He's your high priest Get to that he's passed through the heavens and that he's sinless and that he did that on our behalf and that he can relate and he knows what it's like and get to the fact that you're wrestling under this station that he comes over and he puts his hand on your back figuratively and he can rub your back and speak into your ear. I know how hard it is. You get there and you get help with your temptation. That's a good word. It's, you, you know how you don't get out of temptation? I got to stop sinning. I got to stop sinning. And sometimes we need to do that. Okay. But if you want to ever stop the white knuckling and be able to let go, get here. This is thus saith the Lord. You will find mercy. You will receive mercy. You will find grace and you will get help with your temptation. Father, we owe you everything and we joyfully give ourselves afresh to you this morning that's why we're here sometimes we forget we've been reminded you are glorious and this gives us great comfort true church say it's true it's true 
And so, Father, we say together, it's true. And that is why we come and now with even greater exuberance, we sing songs and we say thank you and we give you praise because of your great comfort that we find in your word that points to our king, to our older brother who has come to rescue us and given us his life for ours. And so we rejoice in the resurrection power of our high priest who has entered into the throne room and made atonement for our sins. And so we pray in his name. Amen.